0: Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Good to see you. Like remnants of spring this week. It's been awesome, right? Oh, man. February came and a little bit of warm weather. Glad to be here. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn, we're going to be uh, John, but we're moving on to chapter 12. So we're in chapter 12 today, verses 1 through 7. Uh, This morning is where we'll be um, as you turn there. So this morning we're going to look at, there's a moving actually from, we've had like back and forth, like theological discourse, long extended, and usually follows something Jesus says or even something Jesus would do as a miracle or as a sign pointing. And now it's transitioning. Chad mentioned last week that there are like six days till Jesus goes to die. And so we're going to get bits and pieces every once in a while of these narrative stories. And that's where we're at today, the first part of this narrative story in chapter 12. And I think a big takeaway as we read it and unpack it, maybe an idea to hold on to in our time together, we see it, it really points to Jesus' worth and our worship. And I was thinking a lot about that because we, we worship something. There, there is something in your life that you worship. You may not realize that you worship it, but there's something that you hold most sacred, whether that's because it gives you security or satisfaction or whatever it might be, that there's something at the center of your life that you actually ascribe worth to, that you find to be most valuable. Um, I was thinking about that uh, Friday we went to the zoo so we took the kids to the zoo, and uh, I was excited to, to introduce them to some of the animals at the zoo. They were a little underwhelmed at different times, to be honest. Like, I'm like, guys, let's go see the elephant. We want to see the I'm building it up because it's the last, like, on the way, tracking through. And, and it doesn't help that all the gift shops, like, you walk in, right, and there's just stuffed animals. They were way more preoccupied with coming back, maybe getting a stuffed animal, than seeing the actual animals that those stuffed animals are based on. And so we're there. And we're at the elephants, and like, okay, is this the last one we can maybe get a stuffed animal? And so we're getting ready to walk out, and then all of a sudden, there's a bunch of squirrels. And that was the most excited they got the whole time at the zoo. I mean, we drove two hours to see lions and tigers and bears and elephants. And we could have stayed in our backyard at the oak trees and looked at the squirrels. And like, no, let's wait, let's stay here, and like, let's watch the squirrels. And like, only our children, right? Like, like yeah, we're from southern Illinois. And so that was the best way of, like, introducing ourselves. But, but that's us, right? Like, like there's so much that God has to offer in his character and who he is, and yet we like to just stare at and ponder and chase squirrels, right? We, we settle. And so we have, we have two people in this story who have spent three years with Jesus, and each of them have come to a particular belief of his worth. They have ascribed value in their life of what's most important. And so we're going to read and talk about Mary and Judas in these first seven verses of chapter 12, that they each demonstrate what they believe to be true of Jesus and true of what's valuable and of worth, and in the end, they show what they truly worship. And so if you will, I'm just gonna read the first three verses and we'll talk about it. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his hair with her feet. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, so in this story, we see here that Mary, it says, Mary pours out this perfume, nard in particular, on Jesus. And I'm going to be honest, I haven't bought or sold in the nard market very much. so I really didn't know what it was. And and In fact, there's two corners, which is interesting, I looked it up. Either essential oils or it seems to be people like manufacturing from America, like detailing it from Israel. So we got two different groups trying to corner the Nard market. I don't know if either are really the real deal that we see here. Because what it is, it's actually this rare, expensive perfume. Uh, it's not something you could just crack open from like Bath and Body Works, right? She's not just pouring that out. But rather, this came from northern India. And what we see here, it's pure. It's not mixed with anything else. And it's not only that, but there's a pound of it. And so in the book of Mark, the same story is there. We see it's a jar full of this ointment that she applies to Jesus, this perfume. And even the few verses below, we're gonna see it's worth 300 denarii. Again, that might not mean something right away, but what we're told is that's a year's worth of wages, this perfume that she empties out at Jesus, 300 denarii. A worker at that time would earn a wage of one denarii a day. And so they would average out about 300 years what they would bring home. And so here she is, Mary, taking this jar, this perfume, this nard, and she pours it all out in Jesus. She breaks this jar, and think about it. It's a year's worth of her worth she gives to Jesus instantaneously. A year's worth of her worth she pours out and devotes to Jesus. What this means is Jesus is more worthy to Mary than anything else. So she could, in this amazing way, pour out all of her worth on him. And we're reminded here that our hope then, it's in coming to believe that there's no loss in surrendering, surrendering to Jesus. What seems to have immeasurably great value today, but will actually not last much more beyond tomorrow. Think about that. We often ascribe such value to what won't last much more than tomorrow. There's not many days it's gonna have value and and there's no loss if we surrender that for what's immeasurably of great value. Like for the Christian, there is no loss in surrendering. That will, will not last and you cannot keep, especially if it's in order to receive what is forever and can never be taken away. But even more, it is only when to Jesus that we actually surrender ourselves not just our stuff, that we can actually receive all that he has to offer us. I mean, this is what he ultimately calls us to in Romans 12.1. What does he say there, right? He says, we're in view of his mercy. He says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Right? This is holy and pleasing to God. And this is your spiritual act of worship. He calls us then in view of his mercy and in aim of our worship to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Therefore, Jesus calls us to surrender all of ourselves, to submit ourselves in worship because we have found the highest worth in God. But amazingly, it is actually and only when we do this that we can actually lean in to receive that as of great worth as well. Like as I was thinking about this, Chad brought up this week a passage to go to and he's right. Uh, Matthew 13, 44, the parable of the treasure fits right in, right? I'll read it for you. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his great joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. It's the same principle. It's what we're seeing described here in this text. And as we read that, I think it's important to understand maybe the way parables work to see how we see this fits. In a parable, you're not meant to break it down and define a lot of different points. But when Jesus would give a parable, there's always one central truth, one point. And so there's not, it's not an allegory where everything stands for something else. They're meant to make one point. And here Jesus is saying the point of this parable is that the kingdom of God is so valuable that it's worth it, even if it means we lose everything, right? His worth is so great that what he offers is so great that there is no cost, nor is there anything more valuable that is greater than the kingdom of God. It's worth more than anything and worthy of everything. So Jesus says. And I think also, in order to understand this and apply it, it's important to realize what Jesus isn't saying. Like, Jesus isn't saying then here that you can buy the kingdom of heaven. Like, Mary wasn't securing something for herself in this gift, right? She can't buy. Like, Micah just said, we can't do something to earn grace. It's not the point that Jesus is making because it's not the way parables work. He's making one particular point. We don't offer that of great worth in order to purchase Jesus, whether that be our money or our time or with our works. Like, Jesus here, he's not describing this parable, nor do we see described in Mary's actions some transaction that we must make for him. Like, you don't get a punch card when you walk in in heaven. There's not one, like, ringing up of every time you walk in the door of a church, right? Or there's not a giving account that credits to you, heaven, once you hit a certain mark or a certain percentage. And and there's not enough good works that you could ever do to outweigh the bad. So there's not something that you can purchase, right? You can't purchase Jesus, but nonetheless, we see here that there is a great cost that comes when we commit to follow and receive him, right? We, we don't buy, we don't purchase. Nonetheless, there's a cost tied to it. And here we see this great, beautiful tension, right? These two realities simultaneously existing together. That Jesus, he first sacrifices for us. But then in response, we do surrender to him. Like both have a cost. But his is the cost of the payment for us. And any cost of ours then is a free gift given back to him because of him. But get this, he gave because something was owed. Your sin, and only he could pay for it, right? When we give, it's because nothing's owed. That's what's happening here. Nothing is owed. It's a free gift back. I say all of this, walk through all of this, because I think when we read this, we're brought to a place to ask, what are we to do with Mary's gift? I mean, this seems really significant, right, that this is the detail John includes. Like, if we understand Jesus' worth, do we have to give an entire year's worth of our wages to him, right? So, what's happening here? To, re- to receive Jesus, do we have to sell everything? Well, these section of verses, um, they point to an important distinction that we see often as we read the Bible, that sometimes things in Scripture are descriptive, and sometimes things are prescriptive. Like meaning sometimes in the Bible, especially in narratives, it's describing a reality, like what's happening in the text. And sometimes we read the Bible and it's prescribing how we should live. And so what's happening here, this is describing and not prescribing what we're supposed to do, right? This is what's happening here. Because we ask when we read this, like if we're called to real surrender, like we are called, and we are called to real surrender, are we to do that exactly like Mary's doing here? And the answer is clearly not. This isn't prescribing what every Christian must do, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless, right? Rather, this account of Mary is most definitely describing what a heart that holds Jesus for its worth will be brought to do. So here we see John; he's describing the reality of her heart that led to this gift, not a rule of how much you need to give. But just because this isn't prescribing how much money you are to give, doesn't mean it doesn't describe how you're to use your money, right? In this story, even though it's not okay, we all have to give this same amount to be like Mary, doesn't mean there isn't something we can glean for ourselves as we are worshipers of Jesus as well with our gifts and with our money. Because John is describing what should be the state of our heart in relation to beholding Jesus' infinite worth. And because of that, we have to ask ourselves how do we give with a heart like Mary has here? Like, how are we to give? This is how she gives. How are we to give? And I think what's funny when we ask that question, how are we to give? What do we really mean by that often? What we really mean is, okay, how much, right? How much am I supposed to give? Like that, again, that's, that's what we think. Well, here's the thing. The New Testament, it, it does not prescribe a frequency or a percentage or an amount that we're supposed to give. In, in the Old Testament, tithes are 10%. But in the New Testament, we're called to be faithful and generous givers. And so I think there's some wisdom And maybe seeing 10% of the floor of being faithful and generous is on top of that. But as for the clear call in the New Testament, there is not a number. Rather, we're told that our giving should be cheerful and sacrificial and regular. So that's what we see here. But I found this this week, and maybe even more helpful was a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in a book that Chad gave me. So I'm going to read it to you because I think as as we think through this, how should I give? I think this quote, I at least found it really helpful. It says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts or luxuries or amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not pinch or hamper us, I should say it's too small. There ought to be some things we should like to do or have but cannot do or have because our giving excludes them. I like that as a principle, right? It's not a number, but rather it reflects the heart that we see demonstrated here. And as I think about this, like, I always want to be authentic and real. I love that that's a value here. So as I encounter this, like Chad gave me this book, and he said like in the office, hey, I think this might be helpful. I know you talked about maybe uh, talking a little bit about giving. So he gives me this book on money, and it's a great book. I'd love for someone to walk through it. Um, but he hands this to me like, right after I'd picked up an order from Panda Express, with points, I might add, right? <laughs> Meaning I've been there for quite a while. And so if you're not a regular there, um, when you walk in uh, to the right, so I can help you out, you, there's a sign that says online order. You just walk right up. And normally, you, I would just say, hey, uh, order for Caleb, and then go get it and bring it back. But this time, right before I got this book, um, instead of me saying, oh, order for Caleb, uh, um, someone walked to me and she said, oh, order for Caleb, right? And, and we both knew that she knew, right? Like I knew that she knew that I was Caleb because so I'd been there enough, but we also knew that it made me feel a little bit better if she just pretended that it was in doubt just a little bit, right? The interaction, she was saving me a little bit of shame. And so that happened, and then I get this book, and I read this, and I feel about this tall, right? I feel about this tall. I could not have had a quicker evidence or a more clear application to show realities in my life that could change or should change. I mean, right, this revealed a clear margin in my life that I should be able to give away. Areas where I have full capability to give. Like, it's not bad to go eat at Panda Express. It's probably bad to accumulate the amount of points that I did over that quick of time. Um, It's probably not good for my health either, right, to go there. Um, But, yeah, I mean, potentially a problem that I was such a regular there. But nonetheless, here's the thing. Even if that's true, and that's a right observation in this case, Even most interesting, obligation nor guilt can become my motivating factor to give, right? Even in realizing this, if guilt or obligation turns me, it won't last and it won't sustain and it's not right. Like we often rightly hear how generosity is a mark of those found in Christ, and it is. And we see it demonstrated here by Mary, who finds Jesus for what he's really worth. And yet, our motivation for what otherwise would be right application, it's often tied to guilt. Like Why do we give? Because we feel like we have to. We need to. I need to make something right. But when we do this, we are actually shorting ourselves, we're shorting others, and we're shorting God. But even more so, what's happening is when we do this, we're actually inserting ourselves as chief accountant of the ledger of our sin. Like Stick with me here. Like, we, when we do this, we actually think we can do enough good, or in this case, give enough, to not only forgive ourselves before God, but literally make enough payment on what we owe because of sin to where God actually now owes us, right? As if our payment on an infinite debt of sin could not only rid of it, we could get rid of it, but somehow I can give enough to where then God now owes me, that I've earned something from him. And he's now got to, he has to give to me. That's often how we feel like we have to give. And this line of thinking stands in complete contrast to gospel-informed giving. Like as Christians, we give from grace, not for it, right? We don't give from guilt. We give because guilt was taken from us. So how are we supposed to give? We see it described how Mary gives. How do we give? Well, biblical generosity is not measured in what I must give, but rather what I can give. It's found, it's rooted in this received reward that we share in Christ's gift to us and that we're then moved more and more to see extra and extra and extra margin in our life because we're participating with Jesus, right? Like generosity, it's the ever-growing process of identifying this margin that instead of investing it in myself, I realize I can now invest it with God and his kingdom. And so I begin to participate in what God is doing in the world, right? Participating in his unfolding plan of redemption. I'm with him. That's why we give. This means, then, that we can't just simply set or identify an amount or a percentage. And there's not some, like, objective, spiritual sliding scale that I can help walk you through to say, okay, you make this much money, you've been a Christian this long, you've already given this much, here's how much you need to give. It doesn't exist in the Bible. We don't have that there. Rather, we realize our giving is an ongoing, growing component of our relationship and worship of Jesus. There is a joy found in giving when we come to know him personally, right? Or we come to know personally the joy that was set before Jesus that brought him to give himself on the cross. And when we come to know that, we begin to be moved from his grace, no longer bound in our thinking, how much does God want from me? And rather thinking, how much has God given me so I can now give? It's real participation with him. Yesterday, we had to work on a toilet, so I called my dad because we the water's running, got a note in the door that like we are consuming water that was running nonstop, oh no. So I started walking around. Eventually we identified it was the toilet. Before we got there, we, we checked everywhere under the crawl space. And so he climbed in first and I, um, I was like, well, I want to help, this is my house, right? I said, I'll go get a flashlight. And for the longest time I've been the flashlight guy, right? Some of you know what it's like, but I was like, yes, I had that thought as I'm standing the edge of the crawl space, like it's time, I want to move beyond I want to hold a flashlight, <laughs> right? This is my house, like I'm going to move beyond this. Right? I don't just want to stay in this stage. Teach me. Like, I want to learn, and he did, and we helped, and he took time. He took his whole day to teach me, and we fixed this toilet. Like Some of you, you're still in the flashlight stage, and you're thinking of giving, right? He said, okay, like, thank you, but I don't just want you to give more because you have to do this work. I want you to participate with me. Like, this is my activity. This reflects my character, my love. I want you to know what it's like to live in this. Come, come do this with me. Have ownership with me. For a Christian, every opportunity to give becomes an opportunity to demonstrate and share from the endless supply of our truest, most valuable possession, the inexhaustible wealth of God our Father, demonstrated to us in the goodness and the good news of Jesus and applied to us in the deposit of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our eternally being possessed by him and our promised eternal inheritance in him. That's why we give. That's what we participate in. And this is what we find here in chapter 12, where Mary has found Jesus for all he is worth. And so she worshiped Jesus with her wealth. And she can give because her wealth is actually found in him. And so John shows us all this in the narrative of Mary. But then right after this, we get this foil, right? We get this realization of this opposite reality of being true for Judas. The contrast of the scheme of value and trust of Jesus' worth could not be more opposite and so if you I'm going to read verses four through six, and we'll see how so. It says in verse four, uh, in chapter twelve, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself, or he used to help himself to what was put into it. Okay, when we read those verses, here's what we see: like Judas here, he has the complete opposite response of Mary, right? Like I, I remember reading years ago about this passage that where Mary's heart it corresponded with the treasure that Jesus is. Judas's heart it contradicted the treasure that Jesus is. And we see in this chapter, Mary loves and worships Jesus, but Judas loves and worships money. And it's this contrast that we have here between Mary, uh, Mary and Judas that reveals one of the overarching teachings throughout the whole Bible. Like if we were to boil down some of the truths the Bible teaches, here's one big one that we see as we hold all the books together. It's that we were created to worship God, to serve others and use things, use money. But what we see in the Bible in this story, we see that money, like all creation, it's a gift and it's a tool for worshiping Jesus. But we flipped it. We've used it, right, to worship and we use God to get more of it. And so this guy named Randy Alcorn said this, and I love it. It says one of the blessings then of giving is that it breaks us out of this sinful orbit around our possessions. We escape their gravity, entering a new orbit around the treasures of heaven, but even more, the treasure of heaven himself. This is what we are created for. Worship God, serve others, use money. But in our sin, we've become people who instead worship money, serve self, and use God in others. And this is exactly what John points out. I mean, like Judas, do you think Judas really cared for the poor here? He's not really. I mean, he's not really caring for the poor. He's upset that the perfume wasn't sold and given to the money bag because he couldn't take from on top of it, right? He wanted some of that for himself. Essentially, he was upset that it was wasted on Jesus because in his mind, it was worth more to go to himself. He was gripped by his greed. And ironically and hauntingly, the money that he had to possess it possessed him. Like think about it, the very greed will not only lead to him to betray Jesus, and not for 300 denarii, but surely or merely 30 pieces of silver. And we see this here in verse 6. We see this growing in his heart. Like in this verse, we get this glimpse into the life of Judas way before his betrayal. Like John's reference to Judas stealing reveals not what just is happening behind the scenes. But we also get to peek in and peer into what's happening in his heart for an extended period of time. I mean, he's been stealing for who knows how long. I mean, greed is continuing to take hold and take hold and take hold, an unrepentant sin. And it leads to this ultimate rejection of selling Jesus. And in this, what we see is that sin in our life always will lead to one of two realities. It's one of two realities in our lives because of sin. It's either brokenness and repentance, or it's bitterness and rejection, right? Brokenness and repentance. That's one of the options. Like, get this real struggle with sin. It it can, and it will, and even it should mark our lives. I know that sounds funny to say, like, you should struggle with sin. It's like, oh, I don't want to struggle with sin. Well, only Christians struggle with sin, right? Only Christians struggle with sin. Like, are you struggling? Meaning, is there war being waged in your life against the sin that is there? Like anyone who is headed towards hell does not go there hating their sin and yearning to walk in obedience to Jesus because they recognize his grace, right? Right now, some of you in this room, you feel the heaviness of having your own money bag, right? Like you feel that. That, Like in your life, the same could be said true of you, that there is sin, there is a pattern there that you want to leave behind. Like if this is you, please see that like Judas in this story, you also have Jesus offered to you to be with you. Like he had Jesus right here. He, he had Jesus and he could move forward in daily ongoing repentance. That was an option for Judas, brokenness and repentance. You have this offered to you today. Like, and I know this with confidence because you're here today. Right, this is mercy that you're here. If there is sin in your life and you're not rooted and found in Jesus, hidden in him and his work on the cross for you, he has extended mercy in your life because you have not been struck down for your sin. And that mercy in your life do have today so you can come to realize the grace he wants you to have. Take hold of it, right? Know it today. Be broken, confess your sin, repent of your sin, follow Jesus, receive this. Know what it's like. That's one reality. But the other is what we see Judas choose. Bitterness and rejection. So there's brokenness, there's repentance, but there's also bitterness and rejection. And in this, we see this downward spiral that is sin. Psalms 1, it says, it begins, the book of Psalms opens up with, blessed is the man who, and when it starts, you would think, when the psalmist starts, he's like, okay, man who does this, or does that. But actually, blessed is the man, and the thing he opens up with isn't the action that he does, but what he doesn't do. And what he says is, blessed is the man who, Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And what the psalmist is pointing out is that sin left in our life, it will lead to our death. That there's this downward progression of sin that ultimately leads down to a grave and then to eternity and hell. That's what happens. Bitterness and rejection of Christ, this downward progression that we see exemplified in this text. The Bible teaches that sin, it is either killed in your life or it will kill. You. At the very beginning, we see this in Genesis chapter three. What, what does God tell Cain? He says, "Cain, yeah, sin's crouching at your door. Sin's crouching there. Like that's a picture of an animal crouching outside the door, right? Like think about that. Yet when, when we hear this, for some reason we portray this or we, we interpret this as being like a stray cat, right, outside the door. Like a bit of annoying. It won't go away. It's pretty dirty." Um, but overall, it's not that big a deal, right? Eventually, it might move on to someone else's house. It's not really a problem. That's not what we see here. When, when, when I hear that, when I reminded that verse, I now think of a time we had in Baton Rouge. We have some, uh, a friend of ours who works with the LSU football team. And so we went down to see them and to stay with him. And we're on this walk in their neighborhood. And we're walking around. Um, coach O, who's there at the time, his son, was the tight ends coach, and he stopped Will. And he said, hey, Will, just going to let you know that there's about an eight-foot alligator that uh, we saw spotted in the drainage pond that, that would run like in front of all their homes. All these kids, all these playgrounds just there. And I thought, okay, we're going to send our families indoors. We're going to lock all the doors. All the men are going to come out, and we're not going anywhere until this alligator is strung up in a tree, right? This is what's happening. Like We're going to protect all the women and children, and we're going, we're going hunting. This is what we do here in Baton Rouge. Not at all we walked with the most vulnerable, valuable things in our life right beside this water, so I could not get back to the house on time. I was like, guys, do you not understand what's crouching, right? Like, we are taking this so lightly. You could tell I'm not from Louisiana. They are a different breed. I'm like, you should see this differently. This is a threat to our lives. Like, this is how we should see our sin, right? How often do we not see it as a threat? We just keep walking mindlessly by. Or along the same line of thinking, Brooke shared this, uh, I think yesterday, what she said was like, what we are consuming is actually consuming us. So kill sin, or kill you, or realize the thing that you are consuming it actually is consuming you. Like, I-, I love that. Sin left in your life is looking to pounce and consume you. When we were at the zoo on Friday, we were coming up to the end, uh, I don't remember what section it was in, but there's this sign, uh, I guess it was for parents, that said, warning and attention, live carcass feeding a- ahead. And I thought, one, well, we're not backtracking because it was pretty cold there. Like, like, I was like, we're, we are not leaving. We were going to see these elephants. I was bound and determined they are going to see an elephant. But parents are walking back like, we're going to make a choice. This is going to be a core memory, good or bad. We are going to look back on this day, and they are going to see, right? Like, either way, we're going to remember what happened here. And so this sign pointed out, exact same, exact same sign, I think, should be placed over us when we leave greed unchecked, right? Dead and sin, becoming consumed by it. This is what greed is, and this is what greed does. When we remain dead in our sin, actively thinking that we're consuming it, it is actually ca- crouching to kill and consume us. And this is the life of Judas. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Judas, Jesus warns because it's also the life of so many others. Yet, isn't it ironic that this sin that Jesus warns so much about that we see in this text, it's the sin that really no one considers themselves guilty of Like, when was the last time you asked someone, like, hey, do you think I'm guilty of greed? Do you think I maybe have some greed in my life that I'm unaware of? Or when's the last time you confessed love of money in your life? Or how often do you hold openly your finances with with a small group of Christians just to help make sure this doesn't become a threat in your life, right? We, We never hear people talk about greed, confess greed. We rarely talk about our money. And yet what we see here, the greed, it's a silent killer coming for us. John 12 makes clear that greed's a silent killer, leading to the destruction of many who would be considered the closest followers of Jesus. I mean, Judas, he's one of the 12. You can't get in any more than he was in, right? One of the closest followers. And yet it gripped his life. Right? Those who we think maybe the closest followers, greed can destroy from within. People thought he would have followed Jesus most closely, yet if given the opportunity to be examined more closely, he and many others would realize, be, be realized see that they would rather see Jesus crucified in their life for their own gain than rather trust Christ crucified to see kill, sin killed in their life, right? Like, rather than seeing sin put to death because of Jesus' death and leave it buried there because he rose victoriously from the grave, they continue to crucify Jesus over and over and over because of their love of money. It's terrifying. But maybe what is most terrifying is that Jesus gives Judas what he wants, right? think about this. Like Jesus he's going to respond here, but he doesn't respond with rebuke of his sin or to his greed. And we see this in the Bible that God will give us up to the sin we choose. This is what Romans 1 is all about. And even more scary is that proximity to Jesus does not mean right relationship with Jesus. I mean he's right there with Jesus. It doesn't lead to a changed life. I was reminded uh, or, or sorry, this is what's scary, that someone can be in so, such close proximity to the light of the world. Yeah, because I was reminded of John 8. Remember we were back oh, a couple months ago in John 8. Someone can be in such close proximity to the light of the world, yet this position makes it no more likely for the light to come through because of the sin that they have barricaded themselves in. We ignorantly and sinfully trust that something other than God will either be our ultimate security or satisfaction, that we enclose ourselves with it yet it then becomes the prison cell and eventually the tomb, which rightly holds us in our rejection of God's offer of free grace. I hear this. Jesus will either give you his grace or he'll give you over to this. He'll give you over to your greed. Verse seven, so Jesus does respond. And here's what he says. Verse seven, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with me, but you do not always have me. Okay, what do we do with that, right? Like, not always have me, but always have the poor. What, what what is Jesus saying? It's a bit of a weird thing to say here. Like, why does he say this? Okay, here's the thing. Jesus, he's actually differentiating not this quantitative distinction, meaning on what to give or when to give, but rather he's pointing out to a qualitative distinction. Meaning, he's not just saying, okay, on your calendar give this much then, and here's how to separate these two realities. Rather, he's saying, no, no, no. First, you have to come to me. I'm doing a new thing. This has to become your starting point. He's pointing both to wisdom and warning needed to heed in a heart that is pointed to the poor but has not yet first gravitated around Jesus and what he came to do. Like, remember here, Chad said, he's six days away from dying. So he's saying, yes, give. He's not saying, don't give. But he's saying, before you give, and as good as, as giving would be in your life, you first need to be changed by what I've come to give to you and my sacrifice for you. You have to start here first. So Jesus, he, he's not saying, hey, 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 wait, this is my last week. Like, come on now. Like, you got all kinds of time. Right now, be about me. Right? He's, he's not being that person, right? Like Maybe you know like that grown adult, it's like their birthday, and it's like, they, they make everything about their birthday that day. It's like, hey, this is when you were 12. Like, I got it, right? But like, come on now. Like one of Chad's favorite sayings is don't be that guy. Sometimes you're like, hey, maybe don't be that guy. Jesus, he's not being that guy. He's not doing this. He says this because he's pointing out a necess- necessary reality to living and loving the way we are intended to live and love. And he's pointing out that Mary has chosen more wisely than she even realizes. Because of the worship with her wealth was given to anoint Jesus for his coming sacrificial death. So Jesus is saying this is the the direction from which we first have to be moved. Like our starting point in everything, even our giving, is first with what Jesus came to do for us. His giving for us. Like in other words, we are to be moved towards others sacrificially. We are. But this only happens rightly in our life by first being moved by Jesus' sacrifice for us. To truly love others, to really be godly givers to others, we first have to be moved by Jesus' love, his giving for us. Otherwise, guys, we'll flip it and we'll give from our works for his love, for his favor. Jesus is in essence saying, if you start with first surrendering to the gift of my sacrifice for you, you'll be changed by my generosity. You will then have the poor, but you'll be moved to give from the generosity of Christ to you. You'll give more, right? Right? Again, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. Like Jesus' death and his resurrection will give us a new heart, not just better actions, we'll be a new person found in him. In essence, what Jesus is saying and what we see in the Bible is that because of Luke two, we're moved from this reality we see in Ruth two to Acts two. And you say, What do you mean by that? Well, in in Luke two, we have this promise of the incarnation, right? We, We spend Four weeks every year talking about that Jesus is coming to die on a cross and raise from the dead, to bring us to be with him, to give us new life, union with Christ. And what we see in the Old Testament places like Ruth 2, that God d- does want people to take care of, but it's on this fringe. In Ruth 2, Naomi sends Ruth to glean from the field of Boaz, but what was she supposed to do? She has to walk around the edges of the field. They leave some remnants of food that they could take home. These outsiders, those destitute, those in need, this charity But it's not really from a heart of giving; it's from a from a law mandated to them. But we see in Christ, He moves us from life like that to just fringe good works, arm's length good works, to Acts two, sacrificial love in community. Right? It's not outside in; it's inside out. Like Christianity, it isn't marked merely by fringe, arm's length ministry, like out there charity, but rather Christianity. What Jesus offers for us, what He came to do, it creates complete arms linked with one another community. Like Think about this. Like Because of Christ, people don't have to stand on the outskirts of the camp as destitute onlookers and outsiders. But the aim of all ministry is for people to be brought in, to be in, right? Come into Christ first, that's the door, and then you're in. Jesus, he levels us all equally as sinners, dependent and in need, and he equally elevates us all in the promise of our eternal inheritance. Therefore, we don't just give some to the poor out there. That's not how ministry works as Christians. Ultimately, give our whole lives to love our now brothers and Christians of Christ in here. That's the end goal, this community. And this speaks to the way that we want to do ministry as a church. We don't want to have arm's length ministry for those people, right? There's not those people. There are only two groups of people, those who are found in Christ and those we hope will be. Right? So, we give with the aim of becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. And those in this room, there's not a distinction of haves and have nots. Brothers and sisters leveled at the cross in their sin and elevated because of Christ's inheritance for them. We give with all assurance. Be- we, we, we give all we are because our assurance is that someone is either our people or our hope that they will become that. Because of Christ, we don't give some in charity, we live sacrificially in, from, and to community. And so in view of this, local church, right? A few months ago, we also talked about that. We took some weeks off from John. Talk about what the local church is. Many of you belong here. You give here. You already deeply invest here. And so I hope this morning, as good of reminders to repent of greed, that this chapter is also a rallying for us to continue in generosity, right? A heart to tangibly love one another. And that being said, like, it needs to be said just thank you. Like, this church is a generous church. Like this is an easy sermon at this church. This is a sacrificial church. I don't even know if you realize how generous and sacrificial you are in your giving. Like you choose to commit these good gifts, not so we can hoard them for ourselves, but so we can worship Jesus with them, right? And so thank you. And even personally, I want to say thank you because you've given to our family in a way. like You meet our needs as a family, but also you allow us to be generous, to be faithful to what we see in this text. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being generous. But if you're here and you're a member and you aren't giving, I want to invite you to that because Jesus in the New Testament, they invite you to give in the community of your local church. And again, this isn't taken lightly here. Like we will never be negligent with your giving. Right? We, we realize the responsibility. right? Like We have read Acts. We have seen what happens when we are greedy with finances given. Um, we, we take the weight of that seriously. But we also don't want to neglect when it comes up in our walk through books of the Bible to make clear that money, it's a gift from God and a tool for worshiping Jesus. So while the application isn't, hey, um, we want you just to give if you don't join here, if you haven't joined in. If you are a member here and you have joined, we want to invite you to give because that's what the Bible teaches. But maybe you're not a Christian. Like maybe you even think you are, but you've really just lived in close proximity to Christians. Like Giving is not the step you need to take, right? Like That's not the first step in is what we see here this morning. Seeing Jesus for all he's worth is. Uh, in our Wednesday night Bible study, Alan Gimme said, um, may we never assume the gospel. And I love that, right? Like, may, Even in this text, we don't want to assume the gospel from it. We want to see it clearly in this text. And so as we move towards a time of response, I want to make sure that we see it here. Like here in John 12, Mary was able to anoint Jesus for his burial. Like think about this. I mean, this is beautiful. It means that she could honor him, worship him, bless him. But we also see here that she could never give enough to keep him from dying. How does this start out? Six days, right, from the Passover, meaning six days before he goes to die. This gift then, as great as it was, it could not keep Jesus from the cross. Rather, it could only prepare him for it. Because her payment couldn't cover the cost of what she owed or what she had to pay. Like the gospel, I had a friend say, it can be summed up in four words, Jesus in my place. There is nothing you can pay to make that untrue your need for him in your place nothing she could do, a lifetime of fortune or good works or faithful obedience could ever be enough. Either Jesus went to the cross for her and for me and for you, or wrath will come to all of us because of sin. And so here Jesus is about to die for her because she has sinned against him. Like this is, he's dying her death. She deserves this death. And yet he's going to it for her. And so think about how loving Jesus is then to receive this as worship, this anointing, like, he's about to bear the full measure of God's wrath, and yet he is blessed by her and anointing him to go do this for her. Like, he receives it not as adding in- insult to injury, but as worship. Isn't that wonderful? If Mary can pour out all that she has on Jesus' feet for his death, what can't we bring? And better yet, what shouldn't we bring? What should we not surrender then? And so as we move time, towards a time of response, do you realize we are to bring everything through the feet of Jesus. Like, there is nothing that we are not called to bring. Like Mary, we can bring, we can and are called to bring our best, our gifts. Like, think about this. We can surrender all that we have to him because it's better laid at his feet than gripped in our hands. Do you realize that? The things that you hold most valuable, it is better laid at his feet than you holding on tightly to it. He won't waste anything that you give to him. So is there something that you need to surrender to Jesus? We can give good things we can give our gifts but we can also and are called to bring our sin and our failure and our idols to jesus like get this judas he could have done the same thing as mary he could have brought the silver that he stole and even the silver that he betrayed jesus with to jesus like he could have done so and he would have realized if he had chosen that instead right brokenness and repentance that he didn't ultimately sell jesus but that jesus bought him that could have been reality for judas You can know what it's like to lose your life, to surrender ownership of what you've trusted as having most valuable, what you sold Jesus for, and in return gain the very thing you gave up trying to get. This is what makes Jesus so amazing. It's not just the good gifts of great worth that we can surrender to him as worship, but it's also that which we have held to be worth more than him, that which we have put at the center of our life and have in essence truly worshipped instead of him, that which in our sin we have sold him for. We can also bring this to his feet because of his death. Both the 30 pieces of silver sold, that Judas sold Jesus for and the 300 denarii poured out on Jesus, both of them ultimately led Christ crucified for their sin. Therefore, there is nothing in our life that doesn't point to and extend from his cross. And so as we're moving now into the time of worship, this morning, I believe you need to respond somehow. And I'm not saying how you have to respond. I'm not saying you have to come down. We, we invite you to if you'd like prayer. We also have elders who'll be in the back. Um, we'd love to pray with you if you respond that way. I, I just think you need to, right? There, there's something in this room and maybe you're already responding. Maybe it's ongoing that you've realized this and this has been playing out in your life. Repentance, call, something you need to surrender Jesus, this gift that you need to give. Or maybe it's an idol or a sin and this ongoing. Continue that response then. Maybe this morning, It is just being driven home that you've got to let this go, that you've got to give this to Jesus. What I know for sure is there's not one person in this room that doesn't have something to surrender to Christ. Like I've sat in this all week. I just don't think there's a neutral, removed response. I don't think there's any way we can be passive in our response to what we encounter in this story of Jesus. Like there is something this morning for you to bring to Jesus and to receive from Jesus. And I want to invite you to do so. So I'm gonna pray, but my prayer for you is that you will do this, that you will see him for what he's worth and you will worship accordingly. Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for what you teach us. God, we get these stories. God, we have this whole book that we can interpret it with. God, we're not left to wonder what you want us to do, but you've told us clearly what you've done for us. Ultimately, this Bible, God, is a story of what you've come to do for us, not what we must do for you. God, every day I forget it. Every day I make about what I must do, God, or worse, God, I I turn away and think what I must have instead of you because I'll be more satisfied. God, will you continue to hold our hearts? May we be a people, God, gripped by you. May what be true of this church is that we are not gripped of the world, but God, we are gripped by the one who made the world. Father, if we can just be identified as blood-bought saints who love one another, God, we will worship you. And God, we want to go above and beyond that thing. We want to give back to you because you have given more to us than we could ever realize, God. God, will you please change hearts in this room? God, those who do not know you, would you draw them to you, Jesus? You are real. Jesus, you have risen bodily from the dead. You are really seated on the throne. This isn't some philosophy that we ascribe to for a better life. God, you are life and you promise us life. Jesus, may we trust in you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.